Got it. Got it. I just don't want to trip. You know that today is the, the fourth and final Sunday of the four sermon series from one thing to another. We've talked a lot about transitions in the scriptures and in the story of the Hebrew people, and then transitional figures who were not leaders or, or wealthy people or uh, royalty of any kind, but they played key roles in the development of God's kingdom and the Jewish nation, as well as in the early Christian church. The first Sunday we looked at Caleb and the grasshoppers. We learned that Caleb and Joshua approached the promised land and their spying excursion differently than the other ten. Caleb and Joshua said, we can take the land. We can go and honor God's promise to us in giving us the land because they knew one thing that the other ten did not. They recognized the God factor. The week after that, we looked at Ruth and the Wheel of Fortune. And we learned in Ruth's story that, that there were several people who spun that wheel of her life that could have gone either way. There were things that happened circumstantially and then from others making decisions for her that could have gone very badly or could have gone well. And they continued to move along in a positive direction to the point where Ruth even was faced with spinning that wheel herself. And that result could have been death. It could have been uh, you know, exile to another country, but it turned out well to where she ultimately became the grandmother of a king. And then last week, we looked at John the baptizer in deep water, the deep water of spiritual truths and how they intersect our lives. Not the shallow surface things that we can get caught up in, but the, the really intersection of spiritual truths in our lives and decision-making. Well, today we're going to talk about Timothy, more than an errand boy. But before we get to him, I've got a question for you. Have you ever felt dismissed from others, by others, for one reason or another? Your gender, your age, your race, your heritage? Probably everyone in this room can recognize or think about a moment when you felt rejected by others for some reason or another. Well, to illustrate that, I'm going to show you a picture of someone in the 30s and 40s who was a, called a bombshell beauty. This is Hedy Lamarr. Hedy Lamarr uh, made about 14 movies in the 1930s and 1940s. And when the war started in, in uh, 1941 for the U.S., she became uh, an entertainer for the troops and even trying to help raise money for the war effort. Little did many people know that Hedy Lamarr also had an interest in science. She, in fact, had talked to Howard Hughes in helping him redesign his airplane. She had studied birds and the streamlined shape of the birds and encouraged him to change the shape, that boxy shape of his airplane, to look more like the shape of a bird. She was learning more and more about science. And when the country formed a council on, on science and, and uh, invention, she asked to be a part of it. And the leaders of the war effort told her, no. We don't want you a part of that. You're much more valuable because of your beauty and your entertaining value and to help raise money for the war effort. Well, behind the scenes, she reached out to a friend of hers, Charles Anthel. And Anthel and, and Hedy Lamar 
started challenge, challenging each other to come up a solution that the, the Navy was facing because when they would launch torpedoes, the enemy could intersect the, the guidance system and the signal and throw it off track. It would never hit a target. So she and Anthel looked at the science and, or the technology around player pianos, of all things, and how the little dots in the paper and guided different things. And so they came up with a system to have a hopping signal and an irregular frequency that an enemy could never pick up. She got a patent in 1942 for that, but the military at the time said they didn't want to bring any kind of invention or science or technology into the war effort that didn't come from the military itself. Dismissed once again. But in 1962, around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, her devices, her modifications of her device, device started appearing on naval vessels. It ended up being technology that is, has resulted in us today having Bluetooth technology, Wi-Fi, and even GPS. She was dismissed. We've been dismissed. Timothy ran the risk of being dismissed because of his age, because of his culture. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. He didn't fit in either place. He was very young. Timothy was born in AD 30 just a couple of years, two or three years before Jesus was crucified. And he grew up in Lystra and had a mother and grandmother that were very influential. And he became a Christian, committed his life to Christ when he was 19. And he was, came to that faith because Paul had been in Lystra before and preached and uh, his mother and grandmother had become Christians then and then they influenced him. When he was 19... Paul invited him to go on the mission that Paul had. Very young, very uh, un unfamiliar with the ways of the world. But being Greek and Jewish, Paul wanted uh, Timothy to be able to relate to both sides. So Timothy, uh, asked, uh, Timothy allowed Paul to circumcise him so he would be able to relate to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Well, he traveled between um, A.D. 51 and 69 with Paul and eventually was appointed to lead the, ch the Christian community in Ephesus. He died in A.D. 97. He was stoned to death because he was opposing demonstrations for the goddess Diana. Let me read some of Paul's words to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this commandment is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about and, or what they so confidently affirm. They do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. That reminds me of, of the fact that we talk about people being sincere, confidently affirming something. And, and I've, I've had people say, well, I... 
you know, I really respect his opinion because he's so sincere. Sincerity has nothing to do with truth. You can be sincerely wrong, which these people were. This was sort of a shipwreck of faith where, where they had become Christian and they started getting enamored with other types and attracted to other types of truths and myths and legends and started intermingling all of that. And Paul puts his foot down and instructs Timothy, this is what's going on. Stay there in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Well, he goes on and talks to Timothy and says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We see that Timothy was moving from formation of his faith to a foundation of faith. It's a formation of of early life and, and being around his family. We talked last week about inherited faith is not something that can carry you through lifetime, but it's not bad to have inherited faith or a formation of faith that happens early in your lives. Paul says to Timothy also, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. You know, sometimes we, that early faith or those early things that are formed happen very early in our lives. And even as, as young children, uh, children in those early stages between the ages of two and close to eight, uh, don't know the difference between Jesus and the Easter Bunny. We tell them with, in, we tell the children the stories with the same enthusiasm. But eventually they begin to move away from that and to separate that from the other, more toward a foundation of faith. But in those formative years, they mix it up. About a year ago, our, uh, she was three at the time, our granddaughter Harper was at the house, and she started talking about Paw Patrols, P-A-W, Paw Patrols. You know how about Paw Patrols? How many? Well, I didn't know about Paw Patrols at the time. I was sort of lagging behind the trend. And uh, so I asked Harper, I said, well, what is the Paw Patrol? Well, T-Dad, they're, they're rescue dogs. They're a rescue patrol. And I said, what do they do? Well, well you know, T-Dad, when Mary and Jesus get stuck in a tree, the Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol comes to take them out. Well, there's that example of that formative faith. But we need to move on to that foundation of faith. And also we know that 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 foundation comes with struggles and and different times and and different things going on in the world. We talked recently about millennials and and the younger adults that aren't particularly affiliated with church as much anymore, but they're very spiritual at times. Timothy would be considered a millennial today. I was reading an article a true, I mean, it's, a, it's true it's an article. I don't, nothing else may be true about it. <laughs> but I was reading this article about millennials, and I got, I, I thought, people really believe these things? Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Millennials are killing mayonnaise. Now, I take that personally because I'm a mayonnaise fan, but apparently 
the, uh, the millennials are kind of shifting away from that. And so somebody's upset. There's actually a Twitter, uh, uh, what do you call it, a Twitter stream or whatever it is, you know, one of those things. It's uh, full of comments about this and people upset that millennials are killing mayonnaise. They're also killing golf. Now, that doesn't affect me much, but with top golf and other types of variations on the theme, they're moving away from the traditional golfing because it takes so long and it's, it's challenging, more challenging than what they would like. So they're killing that as well. And finally, not finally, but they're, they're killing real estate because they spend all of their money on avocado toast. <laughs> now, how many have ever had avocado toast? Well, I've missed that one, but I'll, I'll try it out because it must be really, really good or they wouldn't be killing off, not spending money on real estate in order that they could buy a lot of avocado toast. And then more seriously, they're killing the church, this article said. Well, I'm not going to put that on the millennials. Nobody's killing the church actively, but maybe there are things that we're doing or that others are doing that are not making it as relevant and not adapting as much as we should. You know, these truths for the foundational faith don't come easily. From formation to building a solid foundation is very challenging. The author Charles Swindoll was a favorite of mine, particularly in my 20s and 30s, and, and wrote very practical, easy-to-understand commentaries and, and lessons on Scripture and the Christian life. This is what he said. Don't expect wisdom to come into your life like great chunks of rock on a conveyor belt. Wisdom comes privately from God as a byproduct of right decisions, godly reactions, and the application of spiritual principles to daily circumstances. It doesn't come in big chunks. It comes gradually and it comes from God. In order to be, we need to build a solid foundation, but it takes time. It's difficult to navigate wet concrete, as this guy found out. <laughs> it's challenging to navigate wet concrete. We need a solid foundation. You know, we move to that formation, to a solid foundation, and then we need to move on to application. How does this make a difference in my life, in the lives of others, in the lives of those I care about? the lives of those I work with and, and exchange daily life with. Timothy's early efforts in Ephesus were focused on applying faith to daily life, both for the believers and, and also to help establish the community of faith there, building relationships in that community. Back in 2018, Lainey and I purchased a home in Indian Springs in Louisville. We decided to renovate and then move in. How many of you think we finished the renovation before we moved in? <laughs> Didn't have, we said we would never do that. Never but again. never, never say never, that's right. But we ended up having to do that. But nevertheless, it, I, I, I served as sort of the general contractor and working with the subs and all through all of that process and, and kept learning from them about there were certain ways to shape things and certain ways to do things that were right. And if you didn't do them the right way, the repercussions could be catastrophic. If you didn't fit this joint just perfectly, the whole place may come down. If you didn't wire that wire just perfectly and just right, the whole thing may go up in flames. Well, there are ways to do things. 
about a year or so ago, Lainey came home. First, let me give a little preface. Uh, there were times when she would need to leave to go take care of the grandkids or do other things before I got up. Now, Lainey loves to make the bed the minute she gets out of bed in the morning because it kind of puts everything in order, and I'm not going to ask how many of you like to do that. But she likes to do that, keep everything in order. So when she would leave, I would make the bed after I got up. She never asked me to do it. She never told me to do it. She never suggested I do it. But I was just doing it because I knew that's how she liked it. So about a year or so ago, she came home and she said, you know, you don't need to worry about making the bed when I, when I leave before you. And I said, really? She said, yeah, you don't need to worry about it. And she pa- I said, that's, I hate doing it. I'm so glad you just told me that. And then she paused for a second and she said, well, there is a right way to do it. <laughs> and I've not made the bed since that time. But there are right things, there are right ways to do things. And, and so we need to, to apply our faith appropriately. Take those things from that foundation and apply it and make it work in the way it's supposed to work. You know, we frame up a house on, on a solid foundation. And as the two befores and, and the joists and all go up, you start to be able to visualize it. And the shape of that thing tells you what it can do and what it's for. Faith shapes relationships in that way. On a solid foundation, we build relationships and frame them up in ways that make a difference in our life and those that we care about. Faith also frames our perspective. If you look at that solid foundation and nothing else is there, then it's hard to perceive exactly what's going to happen. But as the, the framing comes up, we begin to understand the perspective and what's going to happen and what it's going to look like. I'm fascinated with movie making. Let me pull up a slide here for one. What's that from? Indiana Jones. Okay. Look at all the stuff going on behind him, Harrison Ford. It fascinates me how a director can have all of this going on, but they see in this frame what it's going to look like on the screen. And that's challenging when you're trying to block out everything else. And you look at all the chaos. I think a guy's talking on the phone back here. And they're trying to shoot the film. This is what we saw on the screen. Totally different. Totally different. So when we're utilizing our faith and applying our faith, how is it framed in your life? Is it, is it full of that chaos in the background and, and other people not paying attention and you trying to navigate in the midst of that confusion? Or do you frame it up simply the way it needs to be so it's clear. You have clarity and understanding of how you're going to apply your faith in that circumstance. That's what we're called to do. We're called to apply it in a way that makes a difference. And then we need to learn to adapt. We move from application to adaptation. For faith to have lasting impact, it eventually must adapt. In 1 Timothy, he was given specific instructions by Paul, some very specific about certain things that were to happen in the community of faith. But times have changed. You know, our demographics change, our economics change, our culture changes, our societal norms change. Faith either adapts or it's going to disappear. You know, the dwindling church membership may be partly to do with the fact that the church has behind and lagged behind the adaptation that it needs. 
Now, you don't change everything. You don't adapt everything. But we, we hold on to more things than we need to that might need to adapt to impact the world. Because there's really one essential truth. Everything else is on the table for adaptation. The one essential truth. God was in Christ reconciling the world to God. And God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's it. Everything else. At the end of my life or your life, my relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the one thing that matters. I may take communion differently than you. I may exercise my, my faith in a different way than you. I may hold on to ceremonies and rituals that you don't or I, I like more than you or do it differently. None of those things matter at the end. Now, they're not unimportant to us. But maybe some things need to be adaptable more in order to be effective. That essential truth is what we must cling to and be willing and free to adapt as the world and the community and the, and the culture of, uh, evolves. Listen to what Thomas Aquinas had to say. Three things are necessary for the salvation of man. Let's go back. Three things are necessary to know what he ought to believe, to know what he ought to desire, and to know what he ought to do. Our world changes every day. And if we move from one thing, formation, all the way to application, the application of faith becomes ineffective. If we don't adapt, it becomes ineffective. Adaptation is the cornerstone of that building on solid ground, on that solid foundation. In order for us to have an impactful life, and for as a community of faith, to, for us to be able to impact our community and those around us. Our world is so different than Timothy's. Think about that. 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. And the world has changed dramatically. But that essential truth is the same truth that Timothy committed to. It's the same truth that his mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice had committed themselves to. And it's the same truth that we have embraced. Probably everything else is different than what Timothy was experiencing in that community of faith in Ephesus. Every ceremony, every, every activity, probably different than anything else we do. But that one essential truth is there. You know, the, the church has changed a lot since I was a small child in that formative stage. But it's probably not changed all that much. An example of how the world has changed and to illustrate how our communities change and times change this is a picture of the graduating class of the College of Pharmacy from Ohio State University in 1960. In that picture, there are 29 people, six are women, and two are people of color. Here's a picture of the 2020 class. Sorry about it. Let's go. There we go. 2020 class, 127 people, 82 are women, and there are 31 black or Asian people in that picture. The world changes around us, and the church must be willing and able to adapt. You know, there are barriers to unity of faith, to that faith that brings us together. And, and I'm talking about adapting in order that we may be closer to a unified group of believers. 
so that our community can be more unified in that faith. But there are things that stand in the way of that. One is ethnocentrism. That means that, that we become only relating to those of our own ethnicity, of our own like-kindness. Like People that are like me and like you. And that happens in different races. It happens in different uh, cultures and communities. Even in the early days of immigration into the U.S., uh, communities would sort of segregate themselves to their own nationalities. Because that's our human nature, to be around people like us. But this can stand in the way of the unity in faith. Prejudice, of course, is one of those that we're, we've talked about more and more recently in recent years, but it's always been with us, and it stands in the way of that unity. Stereotyping is a tough one. I'm, I used to say I was a white, middle-aged man. I'm a white, upper-aged man <laughs> now. And I used to bristle at, at hearing people talk about a white, middle-aged man and the things they would ascribe to me because I was one. Well, think, that is such a minor thing in my life. Think about the people who, that's the single way they're identified by those around them. There's a stereotype, and they can't, they're not allowed even to break out of it in people's perception. Biased language. I was uh, standing in front of a target waiting for it to open and a gentleman came up beside me and and we were looking and it said it opened at 10 and it was 10.05 and what's going on and both of us then realized that we weren't standing in front of the 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 infrared thing that would notice that we were there so we moved over like that and the door opened <laughs> so I go home and I, just a reminder uh, our, our, one of our son-in-laws is black so I go home, and I'm telling Lenny this story. And I said, you know, this is what was happening. I was standing there at Target, and this black man walks up. And I, I paused right then. I said, why did I say that? Why did I? I would never say this white man walked up. And I felt so horrible because it was just an ingrained thing in me. And didn't feel any malice about it or anything. But I thought, you know, Joel's... A, a great black guy, great guy. He happens to be black. We have a granddaughter of mixed race, and, and she's fabulous. But in my own wiring, that was there. So the biased language is there, both in that way, but also in other ways, the way we use language that prevents the unity in faith. And finally, nonverbal communication. Now, this is difficult to get a handle on, but just, uh, just imagine the way we interact physically and around people. And there are ways that you and I remove ourselves or separate ourselves at times from others who may not be, we may not be as comfortable around. And so I think, I think the nonverbal communication can be just as hindering to a unity in faith. How do we respond when somebody really different walks into the sanctuary? Who feels comfortable just embracing that person and, and getting right there with them and kind of engaging? And others of us just naturally will stand off a little bit. So that's a challenge. You know, Timothy was circumcised in order to relate with the Jews. How determined are we to adapt? 
like Timothy did? How determined are we to be changeable? But also, how determined are we to cling to that true, essential truth in Jesus Christ through coming to relationship with Him and relationship with God? You know, today's takeaway is this. Faith formation, foundation, application, and adaptation are necessary for accomplishing the ministry of reconciliation. Without each stage of that, we will not fulfill the mission Jesus gave us. J.R.R. Tolkien said this, I do so severely believe that no half-heartedness and no worldly fear must turn us aside from following the light unflinchingly. In John, we heard, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Let's follow that unflinchingly. Amen.